Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Great show in store for you. ESPN's Brian Windhurst and Bobby Marks. We talk about the Dwayne Casey dismissal in Toronto, the coaching market, the Celtics, LeBron's future. So let's get right to it. Here's Brian Windhurst and Bobby Marks. Welcome into Brian Windhurst and Bobby Marks. Fellas, how are you? Good. <laughs> Happy that there's time off before the – everybody's complaining there's no basketball for three days. I'm like, there's no basketball for three days. <laughs> exactly. But there are coaching changes, and they continue. Dwayne Casey out today in Toronto. I, I don't think either of you were surprised by that, but it will be an interesting – decision from Masai Ujiri about what he does next because he's got to make the case to his team and to that marketplace that he's going to find a coach who can get them deeper into the postseason than they've gotten under Dwayne Casey and it's not going to be easy. You know I've always thought and Bobby I think you know you've had you probably had to analyze this when you are when you fire a successful coach um Obviously, there's different kinds of coaching changes. Sometimes you fire a guy because the team has gone very poorly and you're, you have to make a change. Like, you know, what happened with Jeff Hornacek and the Knicks? It didn't go well. You know, they can go through a 12 person interview process. They can, they can spend a couple of weeks figuring this out. There's an understanding from your fan base and everything like that that you're trying to look for a new guy. When you fire a successful coach, even if you have reasons, and you know Dwayne Casey's going to have everybody and their brother coming into defense, and I understand that. But Masai had his reasons for doing this. Um, don't you think you have to really have a good idea of what your coaching church is going to look like? It basically, maybe you don't know exactly who you're going to hire, but you have an idea of what you're going to do. Because if you don't, you really leave yourself open to having you know created a, a problem that you didn't need to create. Oh, I agree. I think you have to have a short list already. Uh, in your mind, uh, I, I saw Masai, he had his, uh, I guess, a press conference today, and he said the search is going to be pretty o- extensive and open to look at veterans or pl- uh, coaches on his staff or um, assistant coaches. And you're right, Brian, we fired Byron Scott in 2000, um, 2003, 2004, and we just went off two finals. <laughs> we went off two NBA finals, and Byron got fired the following year, and we were 500 at at the break. And there are different uh, circumstances, and I, I was not surprised with this just because I looked at the the past two years. Yes, you got swept by Cleveland, um, but you you had 59 wins this year. You're you're a coach who who would be going into the lane your, uh, last year of his contract, so he's lame duck. And what's not to say that the team gets off to a 10 and 10 start, and then you have to fire the coach in in November. He almost did that this November. He almost did that. I mean, <laughs> That's right. Well, just, You're right. About right. I mean, he almost fired him last November. You know, I don't know how close he came to doing it. And I think the one thing with Masai, he's – I mean, think of it this way. He came into Toronto and the expectation was – it was Case's expectation that he was going to get fired, if not right away, after the first year. And he kept winning and he kept going. And Maybe there was a little hesitation at the end of last year after they got swept by Cleveland, but they'd also not had Kyle Lowry and they weren't at full strength. I think this for Toronto is like, I think Masai knows how popular Case is. Uh, certainly everyone personally thinks the world of him and they know that he set this franchise on a course. He's the greatest coach in Raptors history and he's overseen the most success that program has ever had. And there's a lot of pressure on Masai here to, because it is harder to make that next step. And you essentially had a choice here. Was it coach or roster? And, you know, you win 59 games in a regular season. I know there's always this call in the NBA from fans and some of the media, blow it up, rebuild. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Like you just won 59 (laughs) games and it takes forever to get there. And they have lots of good young players. So I think for them right now, Part of it, too, is how it ended. Like, that game four blowout where that group just didn't show up, that lingers. And getting swept, I think. Last year, they could accept getting swept. They were trying to win in the fourth quarter of close games with only DeRozan in there. And and they probably should have gotten swept last year. Like, without Lowry, that was a far inferior team. This year, they obviously didn't feel that way. And then... You know, certainly LeBron going coast to coast and how that play developed 
And tactically, that lingered. And I think for them, they looked at, can you go to this group of players and say, we're not changing much. Maybe we'll tweak a couple things around the edges. I don't think you'll see uh, wholesale changes there, if any at all. They're kind of locked into this group. Do you go back to the group and say, we can run it back, same everything? And I think the answer was no. And But I think for Toronto, it's like Bobby said, this is the trickiest firing in sports is when you're when you're very good and you think you might be able to be great, can you find that coach to get you over the top? And you look at the market right now and listen, there's been a lot of jobs open or there are a lot of jobs open. There aren't a ton of candidates. There aren't many at all that have people so excited with their openings that there's just an obvious guy they're going to go grab. Mike Budenholzer is the most accomplished of the group available and He's going to be a consideration in Toronto, but he's got to fit like Bud, like any other coach. It's not just, is he the best coach? We know tactically he's really good and we know how the ball moves offensively and he's, he's good on both ends of the floor. But you guys know this. Is there a fit? Is there a connection personality wise with the coach and the players you think you have with coach and management? And, and so that's the stuff they got to figure out because. Masai doesn't know Mike Budenholzer really well or any of the other guys who are out there. Um, and so it'll be an interesting search. See, I didn't like him saying that it's an open search. I mean, you have to say that, but I would hope he knows exactly who he's going to hire. <laughs> I would, I would just hope he does. Um, because, you know, Masai is a guy whose approval rating in Toronto is sky high. He has a very good contract. He's one of the highest paid GMs. He's done a very good job the last couple of summers improving this team incrementally without having huge cap space, without having a top 10 draft pick. They've been able to sort of, you know, you know, make this small trade, make this small trade, do this signing, turn this into that, not sign this guy. They, they've done a, he and Bobby Webster, his GM have done a really good job. And he's got all this, I mean, really generally in the marketplace, he's really well liked. But he's put his neck out here a little bit with this move, and he 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 probably feels like he has to make the move. But I, you know, he's got to have a plan, and I'm sure he does. I'm sure he knows what he's going to do. But I, it's 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 a tough situation because if you're if you're going to sell to your team and to your fans that we're hiring Mike Budenholzer because we need to beat LeBron and the Cavs, Budenholzer's record against LeBron is worse than Casey's. Um, so, uh, and that's just a, you know, and maybe he'll be the fit. Maybe LeBron will change teams. Maybe he'll change conferences. Maybe that all becomes moot. But if that's, if you, if you, if your reason for firing Dwayne is because he couldn't figure out how to beat the Cavs and you hire somebody else who couldn't beat the Cavs, it's, you know, it's a bit of a tough sell, I think. And I also think it's not, yes, they couldn't beat the Cavs, but I think you saw at the end, again, I, to me, it gets back to the way they lost to the Cavs this year that sweep and that's a hard one to come back from and you know case is in great shape he's got six and a half million dollars owed him next year and you know bobby mentioned one thing too and i just don't listen i know the coaching agents it's important to them and the coaches would like to have it but i i don't accept so much this idea that somebody can't go into the last year their contract because players know this like coach can get fired with five years four years left all that means is the coach is going to get his money when he gets fired. But just because you have two or three years left on your deal doesn't mean the team's not going to fire you if it doesn't go well. And so I get why the agents certainly want a guy not to go into the last year of his deal. I think that means really nothing anymore. Well, and, and, and looking back at this firing too, a lot of it reminds me of, remember when Rick Harlow got fired and um, we swept him in New Jersey in 0203 and then he gets fired and Larry Brown comes in and, t- and wins a championship the next year with the same group, but but with Rashid, of course, which was which was the big change. And and I remember team people back then. I mean, it was a long time ago. Saying, "Well, this this roster needs overhaul. Uh, there's too many good players, but not great players here." And you were talking, Boj, about build, uh, blowing up and. The only way you blow up a roster is when the contracts are non-guaranteed, <laughs> when they're all non-guaranteed, and you can, when you can change over the parts. And in this roster, you can't. This has been built through uh, trades and the draft. Um, outside of that, Demar Carroll signing a couple years ago, they've never really been a player in, in free agency. 
And, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to move Damari Carroll for an expiring and, and try to get a dr- good draft pick? I, I don't know how that, what that does for you. And, and we know that Kyle and Serge would certainly be hard to, um, hard to move. So you now you bring the, the group back, uh, another year older, uh, and you take another swing at it, but with a, a different voice. But now it, it will cost you a little bit more because of, you know, you're going to, with Fred Van Vliet, who's a restricted free agent. And that's the next decision when you get into the summer. Is there some shedding there of salary to kind of make it work where you're not going to be a, a tax team? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things about coaches, um, you know, Casey getting paid six and a half, that's got to be in the top four in the league, give or take, you think, guys? Uh, at that salary? Yeah, if you go, if you count Greg Popovich, who's got the, people forget, he's got the dual right. title. And Doc Rivers, who's still, you know, who's in um, the fifth year of a deal that pays him over 11, again, dual title. But he's in that, there's another group there of like Rick Carlisle and Case in that six and a half. Case is a six and a half million next year. So yeah, he was, Toronto pays, listen, they, they have a big payroll. They, Masai, is under a great contract, Bobby Webster and Case. That organization pays and they're committed. And and that's one of the draws, I think, of that job is they're willing to spend money and they're willing to do whatever it takes. You know, assistant coaches' salaries, front office, everything. They are all in there. Not, there's not too many teams like them uh, in the league right that's now. That's true. I just like that number is is a real healthy number. And I think if you, if you know, if he was sort of due for, you know, for example, let's say he was making three million next year, you know, I think he would say, well, listen, I won 59 games. We were the number one seed. I realized it didn't work out, but can I get something for what I just did? At six and a half, it kind of hamstrings you, right? Because if the coach comes in and asks for an extension, it's like, well, that's huge money. And we don't know whether we want to go forward with you long term. It's sort of, you know, that paycheck sort of puts them in a corner. It makes it, it makes it tough to extend him at that price if they don't know if he's the coach. So, you know, part of it is the Casey's contract was so good. He was getting paid so well that it made it hard to, you know, go forward. And, but I mean, what would you know? You wrote about it when, um, when Steve Clifford, um, you know, left, the, you know, the Hornets. I mean, this was a guy who had one year left on his contract and, you know, he probably wanted to know, Hey, am I going to be the coach going forward under Mitch Kupchak or am I going to do something else? I mean, this is something we see. All the times we've seen this in LA with Doc Rivers. Doc, as you guys know, um, you know, his representation made it known to the Clippers that, you know, he did not want to coach on the last year of his deal, that he wants to get something done. And, and we'll see if that happens, but, um, that is something that, that happens all the time. And, and Steve Ballmer, you know, he was on the record as saying, you know, uh, in, in my, and, I, and I've heard this before. I remember listening to Mickey Harrison explain this with Pat Riley. Um, you know, he didn't understand why Pat Riley always wanted five-year contracts. He's like, you know, the, the president of Carnival doesn't need a five-year contract. Why, you know, uh, you know, we, you know, w- what's the problem here? And, you know, the same thing, like Riley had been with Mickey Harrison for 20 years, but Riley still needed contracts. Same thing with Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer, I think, went on the record and said, Hey, um, when a guy signs a five-year contract with me, we talk about the sixth year after the fifth, fifth year is done. It's kind of, these agents or these owners who are, who, who do business a certain way outside, of um of basketball have this difficulty understanding this this these demands about how you don't want to be in the last year of your contract but it is absolutely a real thing that exists out there and if you uh, Brian Colangelo did his press conference on um on Friday and he mentioned that um in it where they talked about Brett Brown who was up for last year of his contract and is up for an extension and he said I'm not going to allow you know we're going to get something done because I will not allow a coach to go into the last year of his contract and he was pretty adamant because he felt that there was some some stability issues if he did let Brett go there, you know, especially with a young team. Right. As Woj said, if you let Brett go into his last year and if the Sixers who have sky high expectations next year, let's say they have a tough early schedule. Let's say Ben Simmons sprains his ankle at training camp. Let's say they start seven and seven. Now you have that pressure, as Woj mentioned, you know, with, with Casey. And and I think the Brett Brown situation is different because you have a coach who's on – he just had a, what was it, 30-game improvement in the regular season and wins a round of the playoffs and loses in the conference semis. If you don't extend that coach after that season, you're sending a message that he's not your guy. Case was in, you know, year seven. Now, that team got better every year in terms of regular season production. 
they hadn't advanced like they wanted in the postseason, to me, that would be a different message. And then you see what kind of extension they offer. Is it like a, like a robust, you know, whatever the number financially is, multiple years, or do you get sort of a lukewarm two-year deal, the money's two-year extension, the money's not awesome? Like then if you're the coach, you're going, okay, I'm not positive how they feel about me here or if they're convinced I'm the guy. And I think so, so much of it depends on where you stand in your tenure with that organization. But if I'm Brett Brown, I feel like you guys are, you should be ready to commit to me in a big way. You shouldn't have any questions that I'm the right guy for your program. Yeah, you're so right. Well, like when we, when you cover this stuff and we talk about it, there's all these shades of gray and all this nuance, right? There's like, there's a contract extension and then there's a contract extension, right? You know, it's like, you know, you get (laughs) sort of a weak extension or a strong extension. You know, sometimes, um, you know, guys get one year extensions. You see that it's like, Oh, you got a contract extension. Then you, peel back the layers. Oh, wait a minute. You know, it wasn't so, wasn't so good. Like this is, this is the, 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 the thing. And, you know, last year we had no coaching changes. And I think one of the, one of the reasons, there was a number of reasons why we didn't, but one of the reasons was there was a whole bunch of coaches in the league who had two years left on their deal. It's a little harder to fire in that situation because you're potentially paying out longer. Now, all of a sudden this year, We've got a whole bunch of coaches who had one year left on their deal, and it contributed. Stan Van Gundy being another one, one year left on his deal. Um, it contributed uh, to, um, to I think, why we have nine coaching changes, and I would not be surprised if we see another one or two before it's all said and done. You're telling me that you can't you can't just do like a player and just give an increase of eight percent off the uh, the last year of their contract for an extension. <laughs> you can you can actually drop it from six million to three million in an extension here. That's that I'd, I'd like to do that with some of these players. Guys, please tell me you've taken care of Mother's Day flowers, whether it's mom, your wives your aunts tell me you guys have already done this i'm not reading i'm not reading this ad for you two right <laughs> no you're not <laughs> my wife this is for my wife's first mother's day as a mom so you know i had to go to the wall for this one <laughs> well brian there's still time because mother's day sneaks up and we hit the panic button which i know neither of you are hitting i'm not hitting it but some of us hit the panic button we get suckered into online flower giants pitching 1999 flowers that end up costing 60 bucks. Or we grab last-minute produce department flowers that smell oddly like green onions. I remember my father doing that one year. That tells mom that you didn't care enough to send flowers from the books. That's short for bouquets, and they're booking awesome. Books flowers are as unique and special as your mom. They're freshly cut from books farms and delivered straight to your mom, so they last weeks and not days. Books even has farms located on the side of a volcano that produce flowers so gorgeous, mom will post pictures and brag about you. And because Books cut out the middlemen, you get amazingly fresh flowers at an amazing price. Show mom how much you care. Send her artisan-designed flowers from the Books. Order today and get an extra 15% off when you enter Woj, W-O-J. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com. And remember to enter Woj to save an extra 15%, books.com. Bobby, I I cut you off there, but the idea, and Brian said it earlier, about there's a new kind of owner in the league who a lot of them built their own businesses, ran their businesses in in very different ways than how businesses run in the NBA. And And I do think, it's funny, now this came at the end of the David Stern era, when owners kept asking, how do we cut costs? Where do we cut costs? How can we save money? I know David Stern at that time told them, do it with coaches' salaries. You're paying them too much. And you did see the salaries start to go down. And the more and more you're seeing teams here in rebuilds who are not investing, you know, they're giving coaches three-year deals. James Borrego and Charlotte, three years, team option on the fourth. We'll see the kind of contract here that Lloyd Pierce gets in Atlanta, as we're taping this, that deal's not done yet. We'll, we'll see where that ends up. I'm sure up. Igor probably got a similar deal, right, in uh, Phoenix? Igor, three years. Yeah, three years. And, um, you know, the Milwaukee, listen, Milwaukee's going to probably have to pay for a coach, and Toronto is going to be willing to pay their teams who are in very different places. I mean, they, they're, in their minds, hopefully, 
attract an elite coach and have to pay more. But I, it's a different owner in the league now, and and guys want to pay for the elite coach. But the rest of them, I think they all feel like we can throw them all in a basket. That our value we find is in the general managers. That we think organizationally the power really resides with the GMs. They're telling coaches how to run things. They're telling them the lineups in conjunction with analytics. They're hiring coaches who they can very much tell dictate a lot too. And it's a different day in the coaching profession. Well, what was it? And it's also because of how big some of these staffs are now. It's hard to fathom paying a coach five, six million dollars. And then you've got three assistant coaches. You've got four player development guys. You've got, um, a head trainer, an assistant trainer, sports analytics, and, and, and the list goes on. And and when you can kind of find a a happy medium, if it's a coach making two to three million dollars, then when the coach comes to the, an owner or your general manager and says, "I need this, this, and that," it's a little bit more. It's it's e- easier to stomach compared to saying, "Well, wait a minute, we're already paying you five or six million dollars. Why do you need? Why do you need more here?" And and I think that's kind of the the trend that we've seen with a lot of teams have have gone, um, you know, within the last four or five years here. You know, I think also uh, one of the things is, you know, there's a there's sort of a little bit of a a cyclical thing with coaches, right? Um, sometimes you see you see coaches. Uh, you know, for example, uh, four, three, four years ago, there was a real binge of coaches who were beginning president and, uh, general manager or, you know, president and coach jobs. So you saw, I think it was like a, the group of five or, or, or whatever with, um, you know, Bud and, and Flip Saunders and then replaced by Thibs and, and Doc and, um, and, and those guys and Stan. And, all, and those guys were getting paid a higher amount. And they sort of tugged all the coaches' salaries up. Now, teams are unwinding those positions, and they're it's going to bring coaches' salaries down a little bit. Also, I think, you know, there's a there's a new wave of young coaches uh, coming in here. Uh, you know, Lloyd Pierce is a guy who, you know, a lot of people have thought as a as a future coach. James Borrego has waited for his turn. Um, Igor has waited for his turn. Um, and so that also affects the market when there's a bunch of young coaches coming in. So, um, you know, David Fisdale got a big raise from what he signed for in Memphis and what he signed for in, uh, in, uh, in New York, but that was partially because he wasn't, you know, regarded as a first time around coach anymore. So some of it is cyclical. Um, but I do think that we're in a, we're in a time right now where, you know, revenue coming in is flatlining after after uh, some really good, beautiful new revenue streams over the last couple of years. The revenue is flatlining a little bit, and uh, I think you, you know, you know, Bobby and I have written and talked a lot about how salary expansion will be flat this summer, and I think we're also going to see that from coaches uh, too. I mean, if you if you're if you're restricting spending on salaries, you're going to also restrict spending on on coaches. Yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned Lloyd Pearson. He's the beginning of a new, it's funny, he's a continuation of what is a new kind of model for a head coach that Kenny Atkinson started in Brooklyn. Kenny Atkinson, I remember talking to him when he got the job, and I, I remember asking him, like, you're really, that he was really the first coach who came up as a quote-unquote player development guy, who was known as like a workout guy with teams and got guys better you know, worked with Mike D'Antoni in New York, worked in Atlanta, you know, played in Europe for a long time and had this great reputation for getting guys better, then developed on the bench and became a head coaching candidate. And Lloyd Pierce follows in the model of Kenny Atkinson. And so you may see sort of a new vehicle, I think, in the coaching profession because all these organizations are saying there's so many teams in rebuild. There's so many teams who are not trying to win and they're saying, well, for the next two or three years, we're going to have a lot of young guys. We're going to have a lot of, we're going to have some draft picks. And we feel like we've got to get those guys better. And they're less focused on how proficient a guy is tactically X's and O's wise, which is interesting because other coaches will say to you, you know, I've had head coaches in the league say to me, that's all great, except if you have a coach who doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't know how to manage a game, doesn't know how to organize the team on the floor. He's just good in practice. He's good in the gym. That is really holding back your development of players because 
you're interjecting them into chaos on the court because it's not organized or maybe it's not organized. And that defeats the whole idea of, you know, growing young players. It's an interesting conversation. And I think a lot of teams are having it as they're doing these searches right now. Yeah. Lloyd Pierce uh, was one of the first player development guys LeBron worked with. He has a great relationship with him to this day. Um, you know, a lot of people are, uh, you know, connecting LeBron to Fisdale and absolutely LeBron has a lot of respect for Fisdale, but LeBron goes way further back with Lloyd Pierce. Um, uh, and even though Lloyd hasn't been a coach for LeBron for more than 10 years, their still relationship is very strong. So we probably should connect LeBron yep. to Atlanta. They have the space yep. for him. Certainly. Yeah, I right? want, I want an aggregator coming out of this podcast to say <laughs> report, report colon. Pierce to, to draw LeBron to Atlanta. I think he'd be <laughs> awesome on that roster. Now, now that would be a reclamation project there <laughs> as far as with that team. <laughs> Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Woj. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Woj, W-O-J. ZipRecruiter.com slash Woj. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Bobby, I've been, you know, doing a lot of homework and everything on the Celtics getting ready to cover the East Finals. Um, Are you going to pull Chris Mannix on me, Brian Winhorst? I hope not. I I absolutely (laughs) hope not. No. Um, uh, Can you tell me, can can you sort of evaluate, and I know that you've probably got your summer evaluation that you're going to have ready when the Celtics eventually lose, whether it's, (laughs) well, it's going to have to be, it's going to have to be a rewrite because I wrote it before the Milwaukee (laughs) game seven. Manix, Manix. So it's going to, that, that, that and Cleveland, they're both going to be rewrites. Manix thinks it's going to be the day after the parade, but, um, um, uh, no, um, because I'm looking at this team and I'm obviously so impressed with what they've done. And I, and I actually think they're going to give the Cavs all they can handle. Now that I've said that, I'll probably before one, but I, I think they're going to give the Cavs all they can handle. But but I'm looking at them and thinking about their future, and they're in a great position because um, you know they they have flexibility and they still have picks coming to them and everything. But I don't think they can afford to pay all these guys. Can you explain to me what the options with Kyrie are this summer? Yeah, so they can extend Kyrie uh, this summer. So it would be uh, 20% off his uh, current salary, his 2018-19 uh, number. It would be, you know, significantly less than what his max would be. It would, it would probably, be, I think it's about $60 million less, but that does give him the guaranteed money for the next four years. Kyrie as a free agent in 2019. It's, Right around 185 million, a five-year max. Uh, an extension is is right around f- um, four. I think four for 107. So that's a big, that's a big di- uh, gap. But it's also uh, you know a player who's been injured and is coming off an injury. Uh, Terry Rozier is extension eligible this summer, so you've got to you you can wait it out, um, or you can wait until he's a restricted free agent in in 2019. Um, we know Marcus Smart is uh, restricted this summer also. So those are your those those are your three big um, your big your three big off season um, questions for you. Do you want to have Terry Rozier and Kyrie be free agents at the same time? If you're Boston, well, that's and that's going to be your that's your cost associated with, it. and especially if you bring Marcus back. I mean, Marcus Smart right now, and just talking with teams, is the hardest free agent to. Project based because it's and I wrote it up in in the in the piece. It's it's if you look at his stat line, okay. If you just if you're someone who doesn't watch NBA games, and you just look at statistics, you would think that Marcus Smart is an, at the end of the bench player. 
But when you watch the game, the impact he has, the impact he had the other night in game five and across the series on a defensive standpoint, it's, those are, those are intangibles that you cannot, um, replace. And I would hate to lose him. It's almost like, do you bring him back and use him as an, as a trade asset down, down the road? But you're right, Brian, your costs are going to start, um, getting higher here. The, uh, saving grace is that eventually, you know, uh, Horford will come off. Oh, Horford in, in, um, and Gordon Hayward will start coming off when, you know, Jalen Brown will, you know, will be up, uh, Jason Tatum, the, the, some of the, your younger, uh, younger players down, down the road. But, um, this is a team that, that potentially is, um, was a, you know, under the cap the last couple of years went, went hunting for free agents, but now they're going to be towing that, that tax line. Well, do you have a feel for the appetite for the Celtics for luxury tax depth? Well, they've, listen, none of these organizations, none of these owners have an appetite for it, but, I think they're an organization, unlike some others. There's some that just aren't going to go into it, whether they're winning or not. But I, my sense has always been that Boston, you know, especially when they're on the cusp of feeling like they're competing for a championship, will do what's necessary. They've been so fortunate to have Danny Ainge, who's made, think of how many hard decisions he's made and. Uh, we were just talking about Maasai and, and making a hard decision in Toronto. And now you're starting to, you know, you, you're going to have to live with the consequences. You hope as an executive, they work out. Danny's made so many of them and, you know, he's kept them financially in great shape with all the picks. And I mean, think of the impact you're getting from Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum with the salaries they're making and the impact they're making. Terry Rogier, you know, you have guys who have you in the final four on the first and second year of rookie deals playing, you know, enormous roles and it's remarkable. And he's been able to, you know, there'll be some hard decisions. Bobby said it, there's going to be hard decisions with smart Rogier and even Kyrie, you know, their hope is that he's, you know, he comes back from the knee surgery fine and he's himself again. And I think the plan remains that they'd max him out and they continue to build around him. But if they had to escape from that contract or had to escape from him, it wouldn't, Think of how that would set another organization back if that player was injured. Well, they'd be able to keep going. And when, listen, Kyrie at his best, obviously far better than any of the other guards, but, you know, they have some sort of exit ramps still going forward. And, you know, having that pick, getting one more pick from Philly in the Fultz Tatum deal, you know, sort of keeps them, you know, they have another big pick around here and, to be able to do some things, even if they want to get back on the trade market. And to me, whether they want to get involved with Kawhi Leonard, if he becomes available, or do they just stick it out and wait and see if Anthony Davis ever, you know, gets, let's say it's 2019. I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be next season. I think it would be the season after where if New Orleans feels like they can't keep him or he's not going to stay, you know, Boston is right there to be able to offer a package no one else can offer. And what will be interesting after this Boston-Cleveland series is if how those young forwards do against LeBron and how it goes, does that impact their thinking on Kawhi Leonard? Do they, if they want to just be ready to try to win a championship next year and they feel like Kawhi Leonard's healthy and he becomes available, they give up one of those players in a deal to San Antonio, hypothetically? Or do they just say, hey, listen, we're going to just keep growing with this group. We're going to just keep growing with this group. I think the whole Kawhi's question for the Celtics will be fascinating. And again, I, for all the aggregators out there, of course, <laughs> yes, um, yes. if he becomes available, <laughs> right. he is not available now. He'll be, he'll be available when Woj says he's available. Okay. That's, that's when you know he's available. <laughs> no. And I was saying, I mean, I, I guess I'll give you a little my, a bit of my preview when that Celtic piece does come out. And one of the things I hit on was the two forwards. And they are, I think, close to untouchable right now as it comes when you factor in their age, the position they play, and the contract they're on. It, I mean, that is the perfect – there are so many teams looking for wings, and the Celtics have two of them that teams – desire and when you write when you when you start breaking them down um not the players but also the picks they're going to have f- potentially four first round picks next year if that if that um that uh laker pick doesn't ju- jump to top you know two or three in in the draft and the lottery next week between their own uh sacramento likely unless it's number 1 
Um, the Clippers, if they make the playoffs, and that Memphis pick that is, it's, it's the under the radar, a Danny Ainge trade asset that he has because it, because it can become unprotected in 2021. And they have, if they want to, as Woj said, if they can stay pat if they want, or they, they have the assets to make a deal. It seems like it, there's a never ending supply of, of draft assets for them. A big thing for them in my mind is player evaluation on what they think Terry Rozier can become. Um, because if you believe that Terry Rozier is, um, a potential frontline, uh, player and that what's happening right now isn't, uh, a consequence of, uh, time and place, I know first off, it's gonna, it, it, you're gonna have to decide whether you want to extend him now, even though he may go back to a backup or whether or not you explore something with Kyrie. Um, especially because, uh, you know, if you, you know, if, if you believe that Terry Rozier can be this good, can he, can he, you know, maybe one of the reasons why Rozier is playing so well is in this, uh, in this alignment with Tatum and Brown, who are your players of the future, maybe, maybe this is when he flourishes. They're going to have to make a, a, a player evaluation decision on Terry Rozier. Um, and, or they, or they may say, listen, Maybe we think his value is extraordinarily high right now, and maybe his value is a little bit inflated, and maybe they can trade him because a team may be willing to trade him so that they can extend him and be very excited about doing so, potentially saying, well, we're just going to pick up a guy from Boston who could be our point guard of the future. So I think they have a very big decision to make on um, you know, who Terry Rozier is going to be. And, and this is a this is a big thing because I always – to bring back a, a dead horse on the James Harden trade, you know, I don't. I think Oklahoma City undervalued. They didn't properly evaluate how good James Harden was. You know, part of their mistake in that thing was that they didn't value their. They, they didn't properly understand how good he could be with their own player. It's not just evaluating a player when you draft him, right? It's evaluating a player what he can be even as he's going into you know his big first contract, and so. I think that's a huge thing the Celtics have to do and how they handle it can really set them up even further uh, going forward. And I think that's where having Brad Stevens as your coach and having a coach that you know is going to be there and knows exactly how he wants to play and knows how the group fits into it. Because often an executive is making a decision based on who his next coach might be or what guy can I bring in that might play to the strengths of that coach's style. And I think Boston's in a unique position because Brad Stevens is going to be there. And so you can work in concert, I think, with your coach and know exactly what he feels because there's no greater evaluator of the team and the players than the coaches in the gym with them every day and a coach you obviously value, respect, and as an organization. Support from the Woj Pod comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. They understand that home plays a big role in your life and family. That's why they created Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. It's convenient, and our trusted partners allow you to share your financial information with Rocket Mortgage at the touch of a button. And in addition to getting a real mortgage approval in minutes, you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you're getting the right solution for you. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash woge, equal housing lender, license in all 50 states, NMLS consumer access dot org number 3030. Brian, I want to ask you about Cleveland and whenever their season's over, whether it ends in a conference final or they get to the finals, as they look in the East at Boston, and Philadelphia and how those teams are set up for the next, let's just say the next five years or that window of time. It's, it could be longer for both with the talent they have. What do you think the case for Cleveland is to LeBron? What do you think is the case that they can make to him or will make to him about here's what we can look like. Here's how we can improve this team. Here's how you can be in your mid thirties. Now he may never drop off. We may be talking about him like Tom Brady till he's 40. You're going, like at some point, 
you would hope, like, you'd look and say, okay, at some point, can LeBron be your second best player in his late 30s? And you don't have to depend on him so much, and he could be winning championships. There's other places LeBron could go, like, like just let's just say hypothetically Philly, if he wanted to take that max offer. You know, I don't know when he'd become their third best player, maybe at like 43, 44 <laughs> years old, you know, but what's the case Cleveland makes to him, you think, about how we can make this work going forward where we have the talent to compete with these guys in the East who are coming fast? Well, this draft pick that they are about to make is enormous. Um, first off, because it's Cleveland, we have to see what happens Tuesday because these dudes win lotteries. And I know they're down at, they're down at two, they're down at two, they're down at two percent or whatever, but they're in the same slot they were when they won the Kyrie lottery, when they had. The, yeah, right. Uh, For the unluckiest sports town in America, like that two percent feels like 22 percent, right? Given history here. Let me tell you what's crazy. I don't know if everybody knows this. Okay. So they won three lotteries over the course of four years. Uh, one of them was with the, the Clippers pick, but you know, they want, you know, what the year that they didn't win was the year that the Pelicans, they were the Hornets then. But the Pelicans won to get Anthony Davis. And here's the crazy thing. The Cavs and the Pelicans had the same record, and they did a coin flip. And the Pelicans, the way the coin flip worked, the Pelicans got this set of, of uh, ping pong balls. And the if the coin doesn't go, then the Cavs would have won that lottery too. Like even their slot won that year. By the way, Bobby, you, you, must, you, know, you know all the Nets' history. The coin flip, <laughs> the greatest coin flip in NBA history – it was for Lou Alcindor, right? Who lost it? That is Milwaukee correct. won it. Who lost it? Oh, was it geez. the Knicks? The Nets? That's were in the NBA then. No, we were in the. Uh, they were in the ABA. You weren't uh, working for the Nets then, right? You were no, you were, no, 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 no. You weren't. You weren't an intern there. But I was with them when we jumped to. to I think we were eight and eight or nine and picked Kenyon Martin that one year. And, but I was also there at number one and we fell to three. <laughs> so you never know what you get when you get into the lottery. And the year you guys took Kenyon at number one, I don't know if a number one pick, except for maybe Cleveland with Anthony Bennett, um, which I think went down to the wire. Brian would know better. That Kenyon Martin pick. Now, Rod Thorne went, he literally went down to the wire, right? Yes, he did because Kenyon, you know, you remember he'd broken his leg, um, in the uh, conference, I guess it was Conference USA back then, um, and he came in for a workout, and he basically Byron um, was the was the coach. He went through 15 minutes and then sat on the side and untied his shoes. Through <laughs> <And sat laughs> the rest right. of the workout, that's right. <laughs> but you look at that draft, and yeah, I mean Darius we, Miles, right, was going to be the player you would have taken. Darius Miles, yes, and and the funny part is. Uh, and I love Rod, is that Rod, and this was how every draft, he would have buyer's remorse after each pick, um, and then he would <laughs> talk himself stories. out of it. And um, we picked Kenyon, and he felt like Darius Miles was probably going to be the next Dominique Wilkins here when we had just missed out on him. And um, and that goes with Derek Favors. We picked uh, in 2010 at pick three, and I remember him, Derek going 0 for 8 in Summer League, and thinking it was the biggest mistake we've ever made in our in our lives. But um, but yeah, that wasn't. I mean, between Kenyon and Mike Miller and, and Darius Miles, that was not a uh, that was not a great draft to have the uh, <laughs> number one or number two pick. That Anthony Bennett pick was like that's like it's like Chernobyl. Uh, you know, everybody's got a story and everybody's running. Everybody runs away from it. Uh, I don't know what the truth is. You I know, just know that nobody claims it. Well, so that draft night, it was funny. If you go back and look at, I guess if you went back and looked at Twitter, I'm pretty confident. I'm I'm almost sure of this. There's a tweet for me around. <laughs> I want to say like seven o'clock that night saying, Hey, Anthony Bennett has a real chance to drop tonight. And I was right, <laughs> except for <laughs> like I was going through teams like two, three, four. I, I had gone as far as like, I want to say 14 or 15 who were saying to me, he's not really on our board. And like, he's not like we're not taking him. Like we don't, if he got to us. I still like guys better than him. And I, I spent the afternoon going through really every, I don't know if I talked to all 15, but I had a very strong feeling from most of them that if he got to them, they were passing on him. And I was still not believing that Cleveland was going to take him one. They were talking about it. And I just, I kept believing it was a smokescreen. I kept believing they really didn't mean it. And so 
yeah, I was right that he was going to drop, except for the fact he went one. If he didn't, go, that's the thing. If he didn't go one that year, it wasn't like he was going to go two or three or four. He probably, and I really believe this. This is not revisionist. Everyone later saying, "Oh shit, no, I wouldn't have taken this guy." It wasn't that. It was that night leading into it that I really believe he would have dropped out of the lottery. Well, you're right, and we, uh, I remember that night because Cleveland had shopped that pick pretty hard, and, uh, they offered that to us. I think it would have cost us Brooke Lopez and, um, pr- probably multiple ones, and I, and I remember thinking, like, well, who are we gonna pick there? Because it wasn't, you know, I know Giannis was at 15, but come on, he wasn't, teams weren't thinking that him at, you know, in the top four, and you look at that draft, and, you know, Victor Oladipo, Otto Porter, Cody Zeller, Alex Len, Nerlens Noel, I mean, that was your group of, um, CJ McCollum, that was your group of, of players, and we did not have, we had Anthony Bennett, I think, 16 on our board. We did not have him in the, in the, in the top three or four. The Cavs were in punt formation. They didn't, they didn't want to make that pick. <laughs> and it's funny, I, I do remember, you know, that night with Giannis, you know, Atlanta was really, Brian, you both know this, Atlanta was really determined to get him, and. Oh, yes. Um, the, I've listened to Danny Ferry, <laughs> Danny Ferry's sob story about this one. Danny Ferry, Wes Wilcox were, were really focused on him, and Masai had a deal in Toronto. I remember Masai was working with Oklahoma City on a possible trade. I think Oklahoma was at 10 that year, and they took Stephen Adams, 10 or 11, or 12, somewhere in there. And, once Adams made it to the Thunder, there was no trade. And but I think if Adams had gotten taken ahead of them, Oklahoma City may have had to trade it out of there, and Toronto would have gotten him. And so, yeah, that will always be you know, the mythology of Giannis's draft year because because it was a horrendous draft. It was a terrible draft. Um, especially at the top. Nobody wanted that number one pick. No. <laughs> Nobody, they, no. Bobby, they should have incentivized you to take the pick so that you didn't have to take the heat of taking <laughs> the number one pick in that draft. Well, shoot, Brian, we, we should, I wish we would have made the trade because that would have meant we didn't do the Boston trade. Because oh, <laughs> that was the same night discussed. we agreed to that. To the summer oh, no. 2013. And, uh, and we tried moving up and Woj was saying about Atlanta, we tried moving up to where I think Cleveland was at, uh, 19 and, and Atlanta was at 18 because we had some internal pressure to pick Sergey Karasev to move up a couple slots there because that was a fan favorite of our Russian ownership and we wound up getting Karasev a year later in the um, no you ultimately got him <laughs> yeah to help to help <laughs> Cleveland clear cap space to get LeBron <laughs> yeah um, so anyway so so first the Cavs have to go through the lottery and um, Dan Gilbert fully expects to move into the top three. Um, because why wouldn't he? Uh, you know, like I said, they won three of the four and the fourth one they lost on a tie break. Otherwise it would have been four in a row. So first off, they have to see what happens on Tuesday, but okay, let's say that the, uh, percentages hold and they don't move up from eight. So then that becomes a vitally important draft pick. And do you draft a guy there who you think pairs with LeBron or do you draft a guy there that maybe doesn't pair with LeBron? And the, here's the challenge. Unless LeBron breaks from his past, when the season ends, um, there's not going to be an exit interview. He's just going to leave. And then they will be, there will be no conversations with LeBron James, um, about who, about what to do with the draft pick. And, um, hey, LeBron, uh, what about your, uh, option that you have for next year on the 29th? Are you going to pick that up? Are you interested in picking that up? What if we, you know, what if we trade the number eight pick for player X? Um, if, unless LeBron changes his modus operandi, he will go dark. And so ideally, if you had a player who was much more invested in, in the team, which by the way, this is one of the things about when people say LeBron's the GM, you know, yes, there are times when LeBron exerts pressure on the Cavs franchise and tries to force them or leverage them into doing things. But there, there's, he, he at the same time, he runs away from that at times because he doesn't want to take ownership of decisions because he wants to be able to have the freedom to blame the organization and or leave the organization. Um, you know, uh, you know, for example, uh, this happened in Miami. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the, you know, the, the heat draft, uh, Shabazz Napier because, you know, LeBron, LeBron, you know, has, is touted him as being one of his favorite players or favorite player in the draft. Um, but they didn't, they weren't on the phone with LeBron saying, Hey, uh, do you want us to take Napier? Yeah, yeah, take Napier. I mean, he fit the profile of a player that 
Pat Riley likes, which is a, a guard who had played three or four years, um, you know, very similar actually profile to Dwayne Wade, championship level player who'd played three or four years. It wasn't like Pat Riley hated the guy, but you know, the concept that, that LeBron's told the Heat, take Shabazz Napier and then, and then bolted on him is just not accurate. He just, once the season ends, you can't get him. Forget about it. You're not getting him on the phone. So the problem is like, you know, Trey Young is an interesting character. Like, I know that Dan Gilbert probably loves the concept of taking Trey Young. He, he would be very excited maybe to get his hands on him and he may be available in that spot. And it may be, you know, Trey Young, a, a perimeter shooter alongside LeBron could potentially be, you know, I don't know how good Trey Young is going to be. I'm no scout, but that could potentially be a, a tremendous one-two punch, especially if Trey Young is the type of player that some people think he will be, but other people think he's going to be not as good. Other people are afraid of that being a bus pick, but okay, that's a classic example. Or, you know, do you take a pick as if LeBron's not going to be there? Do you take Michael Porter Jr., for example, who may be, you know, if it comes down to Michael Porter Jr. or LeBron James, you'd love to be sitting next to LeBron and having him have an inf- you know input on this as to where this is going to go. But I just don't think that's going to happen. So the Cavs are going to kind of have to go blind. And one thing I'm just going to point out about draft picks and LeBron, in his career, he has only played with four First round draft picks. In other words, guys who got drafted and then they played with LeBron as rookies. Four. And they are Luke Jackson, who hurt his back in the first summer league and was never a factor in the NBA. That's one. Shannon Brown, who the Cavs didn't even pick up his third year option. Um, they looked at him for one year and didn't pick up his third year option. JJ Hickson, who, you know, was a prospect, but, and had some good moments with LeBron, but, but certainly, you know, you know, LeBron didn't, you know, get excited about staying with the Cavs to play alongside JJ Hickson and Norris Cole, who was like the 28th pick and basically drafted to be a backup point guard, which is what he did. Now, so if you're LeBron James and those are the four guys that you have seen as coming in, you're not going to get excited about a first round draft pick. You're just not going to get excited about it. Like, you know, he didn't, he never had a Jason Tatum come up and play alongside of him. He never had any of these influxes of talent. And he's 33 going on 34. Um, selling him on a guy who may be really good in two or three years, that's just not going to go. LeBron probably would love to see them see what they could fetch for the eighth pick. Or let's say, let's say they get lucky. Let's say they hop up to number three. You know, I'm not sure that LeBron is that excited about, you know, playing with Luka Donich. Um, you know, even if that, even if that draft pick may end up setting the franchise in a great position in two or three years. So that's, that's the issue is that their big mo, their big piece to improve the franchise, their biggest trade asset and their biggest piece to improve the franchise is a draft pick, which is not something LeBron has been deeply involved with before. Yeah. And um, I think the Cavs greatest situation is that there's no other great situation and, and, yeah. and that may end up keeping LeBron put. Yeah. And of course, Brian, the, that kiss of death for Andrew Wiggins when LeBron and Lee Jenkins did the I'm coming home letter and <laughs> Andrew Wiggins was nowhere in that letter when he was talking about the guys he was looking forward to playing with. So I think Wiggins knew pretty quick there that, uh, he was, he was headed in that Kevin Love trade. But, uh, guys, this was awesome as always. Appreciate it. Enjoy, uh, Maybe the last couple of days here of no hoops for a while, although there's plenty else going on. And we will see you on the road this week, I'm sure. Sounds good. Thanks, Woj. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guests today, ESPN's Brian Windhorst and Bobby Marks. Remember, you can subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes of this pod wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your shows. And thanks to our sponsors today. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Woj Pod. We'll catch you next time.